Today on episode number 204 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Sarah Rose Havana shares about her book, The Spark of Learning, and more. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I am excited to be welcoming back to the show, Sarah Rose Havana. Sarah is currently on the faculty at Assumption College, where she directs the Laboratory for Cognitive and Affective Science and serves as Associate Director for Grants and Research in the Center for Teaching Excellence. Her teaching focuses on emotion, motivation, and neuroscience, and her research considers whether the strategies people choose to regulate their emotions and the degree to which they successfully accomplish this regulation can predict trajectories of psychological functioning over time. Sarah's coming back on the show. She was here all the way back on episode 135. Today is 204. It's been a while. And she's going to share some new discoveries that she's had as she's been touring around talking about her book, The Spark of Learning, Energizing the College Classroom with a Science of Emotion. And that book is part of James Lang's series on teaching and learning in higher education. And that might ring a bell because you may remember they provided and are still providing the financial support for the transcripts for the first 200 episodes really got us going (laughs) all the way back from zero to 200. And the transcript of this episode has been made possible through a financial contribution by the Teaching and Learning in Higher Education book series. That's from West Virginia University Press. And as I mentioned, it's edited by James M. Lang. And the series offers compact books from great writers who provide you with the practical guidance you need to help students learn and succeed. Before I get to my interview with Sarah, I wanted to say thank you to today's episode sponsor, and that is Screencast-O-Matic. You've heard me share about them in past episodes, and also I've written a couple of blog posts about how I make use of screencasting in my teaching, and specifically Screencast-O-Matic. They have a great free version, which will get you up and running. Just what is it like to film your screen, what's happening on your screen, or film your face, or even go back and forth. But I do recommend their pro version, because you can then draw and zoom, you can mix in video, you can record on your computer if you're on a Windows computer, you can have scripted recordings, and even add some overlays and video effects and background music. So it really just takes it to the next level. And they have a special offer for us for 50% off of that pro annual membership. And you can see that at screencastomatic.com. There are dashes between the screencast-o-matic.com slash higher ed 50. And there also is a link to that promotional 
opportunity at teachinginhighered.com slash 204 for episode 204. We thank Screencast-O-Matic for your support of the show. And also just thanks for making a great product that I get to make a lot of use of in my own teaching. And also it's wonderful for showing students and faculty alike how to do something in a very fast way. Thanks again, Screencast-O-Matic. And now back to my interview with Sarah and welcoming her to the show. Sarah, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Oh, thanks for having me. It's lovely to talk with you again. I'm excited to catch up with you today. And in particular, I know that you have been doing quite a bit of travel and travel mm-hmm. specifically around your book. But can we, even before we get to the book itself, have you learned any lessons just on travel and, and being on the road so much that come to mind or had any <laughs> had any big surprises with all of that? Not really. I think I've learned to pack really light. Mm. <laughs> I used to be someone who I really like being prepared. So I would always check bags and have lots of different, you know, things, books and outfits and traveling a lot has led me to have a little suitcase that I can just put under the seat. So packing light has been interesting. <laughs> I went up to Sacramento once to teach a class as a part of a cohort that was up there. And talk about packing mm-hmm. light. It wasn't even so much me, but the person I was traveling with was like, don't you dare check a bag. <laughs> you know, that, like, kind of thing. And I yeah. actually, I think, yeah, and I guess he left early. So that's why I was on my own. It was like 35 degrees and there's ice on the windshield of my oh, rental God. car. And I have no jacket, nothing, nothing. Oh, <laughs> just, no. just me and my teeth are chattering. I can't remember the last time that my teeth were oh. chattering. So you do, you do want to pack light, just not so light that, that right. you're freezing. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure some of you in, in colder parts are like 35. That's when I put my shorts on yeah. or whatever, but it was pretty cold for me. Well, what have been yeah. some of the surprises that you have had or interesting interactions with people's reaction to the book itself? One thing I like to tell people, because it's true, <laughs> when I do talks and workshops is I feel like I have learned so much since writing the book. Because as I came to the writing of the book as a research psychologist, and my, my background is in emotion science. And so that whole part was my expertise. But then I was relatively new to the whole world of the academic literature on pedagogy. And so I obviously did a lot of research in writing the book. But then traveling to all these different campuses, talking to people and hearing the ideas that they're using, uh, hearing their book recommendations, I really wish I could write the book all over again. Because <laughs> I, I, there are just so many ideas that I've encountered that I think would fit really well that I discovered afterward. I can completely relate to that and know that it's one of those once something you, you allow it to feel done in your mind that they, these things really never are done. And it is fun to right. think about because it's not just a book, but it really does then almost create a community of people around the book that are interacting mm-hmm. with it and experimenting with what are some of the memories you have of the ways that people have put various aspects of it into use in their classrooms? Oh, that's great. I think I don't know, this is not so much a practical point, but the my favorite thing that anyone ever said to me was sort of recently at a workshop. And she said that she just wanted to thank me for writing the book because it provided a scientific validation for all the fun, goofy things she likes to do in the classroom. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that was so gratifying to hear. And I, I really loved that. Because I think we, we do all do these things in the classroom to engage our students and to relate to them and to get them curious. And 
sometimes they can feel sort of frivolous. And I think we wonder, why are we doing this? But then when you see that, well, students aren't going to learn if they're not engaged, if they're not curious, if they're not wanting to kind of dive into the material and the activities. And then that provides that sort of justification. And we realize why we've been doing this all along. So I I kind of related to that comment as well, because that was my process of writing the book. You know, oh, I do all these things in the class. And look, there's there's a study on this. <laughs> and that was really neat to see. That's really true, because so much of the time we think of it as, I know one of the words that you've used to describe this, um, again, not you, <laughs> you're reflecting other people's <laughs> perceptions is just this idea of coddling or edutainment mm-hmm. or, you know, that we're, that we're just mm-hmm. doing it for not valid reasons. And so yeah, to give people the science behind it and help see that no, actually, this can contribute to people's learning. That's really, that's really powerful. It must have been fun to hear someone talk about that. Yes, yes. And I think in response to those criticisms that you hear sometimes, another thing I ran into that I probably is the the thing that I most wish I had read before I, I wrote the book is a blog post by Kentina Smith. She's an educational psychologist. And I, I had, in writing the book, I feel like I did a decent job of providing a kind of framework and organizing framework for why emotions should benefit learning. But I don't think I did as good a job providing a framework for the practical tips. And so I have a lot of practical tips in there, but I don't think that they're so much organized in a framework. And Cantina Smith provides that framework in a blog post that she wrote that I'll, I'll send you. It's one of my recommendations for the end of, of our talk. And she calls what she uses as emotional hooks. And, and they're all the sorts of things that, that I was recommending as well, using movie clips or provocative questions or debates or all of these sorts of things that will engage initial interest. And what I like about that is I love the metaphor, you know, hooking, uh, hooking our students, getting them interested, getting them focused on the learning material. But then it also, I think, answers some of these edutainment criticisms in that what she's arguing and what I'm arguing isn't that every moment needs to be super fun, right? But you can't avoid getting initial excitement, right? You can't avoid an initial curiosity. The students are not going to be able to change their knowledge structures, to grapple with material, to see the world in a new light, to develop skills unless they want to do so, unless they're motivated to do so. And so some of these things that can feel fun are just initial, generating initial excitement. And then some of the work is going to be less entertaining, but students, I think, will remain engaged, uh, will remain motivated if we initially generate excitement. When Derek Breff was on the podcast, this is back on episode mm-hmm. 71. So we're going back in time now. He introduced oh, me. Yeah, he introduced me to this term times for telling. And he actually cited the mm-hmm. it was Daniel Swartz and John Bransford in 1998. Mm-hmm. A time for telling. And I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes as well. So we'll have a couple of different examples. But that when you're describing that, that sounds so much like just creating these this fertile soil for learning and really mm-hmm. grabbing people's attention because we know how hard 
that can be to grab attention. And I was working right. on the transcripts recently, and um, the first anyone who who act, there's a few people who go all the way back to episode one, and the first mm-hmm. five episodes I think are just my husband Dave and I, and they're like, oh, I thought the whole show was going to be you. It's <laughs> just like, well, no, that changed <laughs> after a bit. But Dave tells this story about his chemistry teacher when he was in high school. And how that he set this up in the very beginning of a class that chemistry isn't what it seems and it's all around you. Things are always different than you think they are. Mm-hmm. And Dave says, so he finished up with lighting a candle and putting it on his desk. And the story was somehow tied to the candle, but Dave can't remember how. And, he, and so the teacher <laughs> picks up the candle. It was lit and threw it in his mouth and started chewing it. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) And he chews this candle and swallows it and then says, so remember, chemistry isn't always what you see, what it looks like or what it seems. And then he walked out. And Dave says that like the class was actually at times boring and like it wasn't like the guy was that engaging the entire time. But boy, every class Uh they sat up in their chairs and were just like, what's going to happen next? (laughs) It's just like, and just think of that emotion that, you know, we could remember all those years later. And I mean, I know I'm, I'm, I just heard the story and I'm still fascinated by like, how did he do that? How was that possible? What was it that he meant by things aren't always what they seem? You know, I, I wish I would have had someone that, just able to tap into emotions for some of my science classes. Yeah, that's wild. <laughs> what have been other stories that you've gathered that you think, gosh, if I, if I were to do the second edition, you know, what's going to come into the book that, that maybe you wish you would have emphasized more? I think another work is Christopher Emden's mm-hmm. for white folks who teach in the hood and the rest of y'all too. He wrote it, I think, geared at secondary ed, but is just rich with lessons, I think, for higher ed as well. And been kind of following him on Twitter and watching his videos and I uh, actually bring in a couple of minutes. He has this five minute TED style talk that I bring into some of my workshops. And he, I think two things, I mean, there's multiple things that I think are wonderful about his work, but one regarding you know, one thing I talk about in Spark is kind of being the spark, right? And the, uh, that teacher enthusiasm and passion is one of the things that is most important that we have to convey that to our students because that gets them excited as well. And he has um, what he calls Pentecostal pedagogy and argues that you need to go into the spaces where people are good performers, where people are capable of grabbing attention, of motivating people. And he talks about the black church and barbershops and rap concerts as as models for how to, you know, be in front of an audience and get them enlivened, get them uh, as engaged as you are. And I love when he says, um, magic can be taught. You know, we like to think, oh, that that really dynamic professor, they just, they have that magic. They have that, you know, innate skill at, at speaking or engaging students, but that actually a lot of these things you can learn, that you can practice. And so I love all that. And then he also, one of the other top ideas of his that I find really engaging is the idea of generating co-generative dialogues in your classroom. And so he has this this model where you select a few students from the class and you have them meet outside of class, kind of with food and fun. 
and give them some kind of task that they have autonomy over, some aspect of the course that they can design, and that you intentionally select students to be representative of the class, you know, different genders and ethnicities, and if there are little cliques and groups forming, you know, different people from those, in order to both give students autonomy and have them be generating some of the class structure, the class material, but then also to build this real sense of community among the students themselves and and gives you a window into the sorts of concerns that they have, what they're interested in. And I love I love that model for, for how to build a sense of community in the classroom. I'm really intrigued by the phrase of being the spark. And I see mm-hmm. I see two elements. I'm sure my understanding is limited, but I see two elements. One you already described, which of course is that this can be taught and just how important mm-hmm. us having that mindset of it instead of, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm just not entertaining. I'm just not, that's just not my personality or whatever, but that, that there are, I mean, mm-hmm. certainly we want it to be authentic. So we, it's helpful right. if we can find images that are just stretching us a little bit beyond where we are versus someone that's just entirely a different person than we are, then right. that, that would be harder to emulate and to, and to learn. What about the part of just not feeling it? You know, the, the, to what yeah. extent do you embrace or believe in more of a behavioralist approach from a psychological mm-hmm. perspective? And, and what, what part do we come back to authenticity? I'm, I'm wondering if you wrestle with those things or bring that into being the spark. Right. I think two things. One, I just want to touch, before answering your question, just want to touch on and agree with you uh, that authenticity is important. And that I do think that there are certain attributes that we all can benefit from. There's a lot of literature that I review in the book on immediacy cues. And that's just things like eye contact, of gestures, uh, leaning forward, use of inclusive pronouns like we. And I think some of that can generalize no matter what your personality or your style is. But I think that also we need to be authentically ourselves. (laughs) And I think we all know that we all can think of different teachers in our past who had very different styles, but who nonetheless, you know, really made us feel passionate about the subject. And, you know, some some people can just sit quietly and read a poem in in a very quiet, (laughs) non, you know, entertainer sort of way. And it just draws us in. I always use the example, and I won't name him, <laughs> but we have a professor on campus who, who is very authoritative and kind of steely and wears three-piece suits and cold calls on students and kind of has this style that's a little harsh that probably would go against some of the literature, but students love him. Uh, they absolutely love him. They'll change the major. You know, in, so I think we, there, we need to be attentive to the fact that there are lots of different ways to, to portray that passion to be the spark. I have been thinking so much about authenticity, too. And I know I mentioned this on a recent mm-hmm. show, but just to have to bring it up again, there's this wonderful new podcast. And I say new, and then it came and went because it's just four episodes <laughs> that Harvard Business Review put out a podcast titled Women at Work. And it is so worth going wow. and listening to all four episodes. But one of them was about authenticity. And I just realized how white my view is of authenticity, uh, Mm because most of the people on it were African American, and they talked really about the blackness of authenticity. And I realized like all the TED Talks I had been watching books I had been reading, they really Mm -hmm. were from a white woman's perspective. And that we can go so much deeper. And then it's so much more problematic in a 
really fascinating ways when we go deeper and realize, oh, gosh, like there's so much more that I hadn't unpacked yet just from what right. I had read and been exposed to. So I would really suggest people go and check that out if you are interested in the topic of authenticity and especially maybe breaking your own <laughs> mental image. Right? What that yeah, word no, means. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. It's really good. So oh, it, one you. of the things then I know you wanted to share a little bit then about is reaction to my thoughts on um, behavioralism and, and mm-hmm. being the spark. So I think I took a a little bit of a look in the book at literature on emotional labor. And that has to do with sort of, I think what you're talking about, to what extent should you kind of fake it? (laughs) If you're not feeling it, to what extent is it just putting on certain behaviors that the students are responding to? Does it matter if you're feeling it deep inside? And that literature is really interesting. Uh, Some of the classic work studies flight attendants And because they always have to be positive, right? Even in some pretty scary situations. And that literature tends to show is that there's a difference. There's two forms of emotional labor. One that's called surface acting, which is just what it sounds like, putting on the show without feeling or changing what you're feeling inside. And that tends to be more associated with kind of a, a stress response in the person performing and also not as great a reaction from the receivers of that performance. Whereas there's another form of emotional labor, which is called deep acting. And that relates a lot to actually something I've researched quite a bit, which is emotion regulation and cognitive reappraisal and rethinking the situation in order to change kind of your inner emotions and then to portray those. And that form of emotional labor, you know, doing some work at the start of class, you know, even if you're not feeling it, to check in with your values, to check in with your motivations, why you're there, what you're hoping to bring to the students, and then kind of eliciting those emotions to then portray them is probably going to be less wearying and also more persuasive. Oh, that's so powerful. Yeah, I had not remembered that aspect of your book and just how important that is. That's something that mm-hmm. if I do regularly makes such a difference, and then I get off track and I can really feel it. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard work. I know one of the things you wanted to share with us today is totally shifting gears and that is to talk a little bit <laughs> about a grant study that you've been a part of from the Davis Educational mm-hmm. Foundation. Could you share about that? Absolutely. And this is hot off the presses (laughs) because it's not yet off the presses. We're just coming to the data analysis stage uh, and just have some preliminary results to share. And so this was, as you mentioned, uh, generously funded by the Davis Educational Foundation. And it's a grant study that I've been working on with Jim Lang and Heather Urie of Tufts University and Jeff Burke, who was, when he joined us, affiliated with Columbia University and Carl Fulweiler UMass Medical School. And what we were doing was trying to test some of the ideas in my book. So I think most of the most of what we've talked about together, both this episode and the previous episode, has been on how emotions are beneficial in the classroom. But of course, emotions can also be detrimental. Students are feeling highly anxious if they're really frustrated, if they're bored. These negative affective states can probably interfere with learning. And so we wanted to know, could we give students some tools from emotion science, namely mindfulness and also cognitive reappraisal, 
or rethinking the situation or your emotion in order to change it, could we give them those tools and would that benefit learning? And so we used a fleet of iPads. <laughs> so Jim and I were running around Assumption College with armfuls of iPads and we programmed a web application to teach students a little bit about mindfulness or reappraisal. And they would engage with the iPads to learn these techniques. And then the teacher would teach the lesson. And then they would pick up the iPad again and take a quiz. Mm. And then at the end of the semester, we had them take a final exam. And we had lots of controls and control days, control sessions that I won't bore you with. But what we're finding is that reappraisal is the most effective in generating better learning in the long term. So I, again, this is all preliminary, but it seems to, our data seems to indicate that giving students some ways of rethinking how they'll approach their boredom, their frustration, their anxiety at the start of class yields better learning in the long term, that they're better able to engage with the material that the professor is teaching them and then have better performance on that kind of full final exam that we give them at the end of the semester. So we're pretty excited about that. I know it's totally breaking the rules of, of research, but actually it's not entirely breaking the rules of research. But could you just tell a fictitious story of someone and kind of walk us through her day of how, how she might have taken the iPad and what it might, like the things that might have shown her. Could you just tell a quick story of a, of a student oh, who, yeah. who, so I can get inside of her head and, and understand better. Right. So one of the classes was a math class, an introductory math class. So I'll, I'll take a fictitious example from there. And that's good because that's a subject the, that has caused me a lot of anxiety in my life. So it's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's a thing. <laughs> math anxiety is real. <laughs> and so a student might come into that class and feeling a little anxious about her abilities or performance, you know, the, the work that they're doing in the classroom or feeling worried about what the professor is thinking of her abilities. The other students, is she the only one that has an iPad in this class or are there a few? Like how, how does that, how is the, oh, uh, the yep. other the students? Oh, yeah, the whole class has an iPad. Okay. Yep. Oh, so yep. she so she we, is a part of the study and everyone in there is is going through the same kind of content. So it's not like she got there earlier right. or something like that. Okay. Right. And one thing that we did is, I don't know if this is getting, <laughs> introducing more layers, but different students did different things on different days. And okay. so everyone would have the iPad. We would come in, pass out the iPads. Everyone put on their headphones, pick up the iPads. But some of those students, you know, it was randomized. So some of the students would be doing reappraisal that day. Some students would be doing mindfulness. Some students would be doing the control condition. Mm. But this student might come in, you know, feeling that anxiety. She might also have be experiencing some stereotype threat, knowing that there's a stereotype about women in math. And so she would put on the headphones and open up the app and it would show her some images and some text and walk her through first kind of normalizing emotions in the classroom saying, you know, college can be an exciting time, but it can also be a stressful time that you might have these sorts of concerns that your fellow students are having these same concerns that also emotions are part of learning and that being frustrated as you're learning new skills is natural and that that might actually help your learning. And then we specifically ask about boredom, frustration, and anxiety. And we give her three different ways that she could rethink. You know, if you, if you start feeling anxious about your performance or about the upcoming quiz or something like that, 
here are three different things that you could tell yourself. You could tell yourself that many people in the classroom are feeling anxious and that that's a natural feeling and that you shouldn't worry about it. You could think that these tests and quizzes that you're taking are there to help you learn. They're not there to evaluate you or, or judge you, etc. So it would give her some ways of rethinking that anxiety. And then we asked her to choose her favorite one. <laughs> you know, if you start feeling anxious during the class, which one of these do you think would be the most effective? And that kind of taps into, there's a literature on what are called implementation intentions, which are kind of if-then statements showing that this can be really powerful, especially when pursuing goals. And so we kind of framed it in that format. If you start feeling anxious, then you will what? And ask her for to commit to one of these strategies. Oh, I like that too, because the it would, obviously one's going to resonate more than others. And then that really mm-hmm. does help internalize it a little bit more if I do intend to take action right. in this way. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing yeah. about the study. I can't wait till it oh, comes no out problem. and sounds like a really good team of people working on it. And I'm just excited to see what your findings are and, and where and when might we, might we expect this is we're recording this. Let's see. Today's the 4th of April. And uh, when, when can we impatient people be ready for, <laughs> for the results? Um, well, uh, a couple of different venues, the actual publication will be a little bit subject to the whims of peer review. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How long that will take. Uh, we're hoping to get them out quickly to the peer reviewers, but in my experience, that can be a long process. I'm presenting a poster at the Association for Psychological Science in May. So some of the results will be there. And then I would love to pitch our one-day conference. So the same team that put together the research study is part of the grant. We had a dissemination piece. And so we're going to be hosting a one-day conference on just kind of social, emotional, motivational aspects of higher ed pedagogy next spring. So spring 2019, probably mid-May. On a Friday in mid-May, we're still kind of hashing out all the details, but we'll be presenting our results. And then we're hoping to have a couple other speakers uh, present other research. We're going to have Carl Fulweiler guide people through a brief mindfulness activity you could use in class. And then we're also hoping to have an actor come and teach a little bit about immediacy cues and some of those ways that we can all show our inner spark. (laughs) Oh, it sounds like a great conference. And I was thinking, as you said it, boy, that's a long time away. And then I realized, actually, it's going to be the blink of an eye the way these things work. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It feels very close to me. (laughs) Well, thanks for sharing updates on what you're discovering about your book, The Spark of Learning, and also about the Davis Educational Foundation grant study. This is the point in the Mm -hmm. show where we each get to give some recommendations. And I have a general one and then a a specific one. My general one is a tool called Goodreads. And Goodreads has Ah. actually been a way that is getting me to read more. And uh, Mm -hmm. people like Sarah and people like me can use it in the sense of you can read your books digitally. And actually now if you read them on Amazon Kindle, they'll sync back and forth to Goodreads, which is where I went to find the notes that I took on Sarah's book only to realize it was a physical copy. And I can network with other people, whether I know them or whether they just have similar reading tastes to mine. And they have a reading challenge you could 
choose to participate in every year. And mine, I just up by a couple of books and it's just amazing. And I'll, I can, maybe this seems silly, but like, I'll think like, oh, okay, well, we just started April now. So I better, you know, get on the ball because I've got, you know, I'm, my goal for this year is 24 books, which to some of you may not seem like that much, but to me with two small children at home, it feels like yeah. a stretch, but, <laughs> but not beyond what's doable for me. And uh, yeah, so Goodreads is really a great service. And then it's kind of like a social network for readers. You can track what you've read. And, and again, choose, you can choose to connect with other people or just choose to have it as a private list of your readings. And then specifically, they had at the end of, I believe, 2000. Let's see, what year are we in now? 2017. They had kind of their best of, like most read, most recommended lists. And and one of the books that I discovered through that is called The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. And you may have hmm. seen that written up in different, because it certainly showed up in a lot of top book lists. It's about a 16-year-old named Star Carter and her navigating between two of her cultural worlds. There's the poor neighborhood where she lives and then there's the fancy suburban prep school where she goes to school. And she just has to balance very cultural differences. And she has a terrible thing happen that she witnesses, which is the fatal shooting of her childhood best friend, Khalil, at the hands of a police officer. And Khalil was unarmed. And it's really the story of her navigating through these two different worlds. And her life is at risk, of course, because there are some people who if she shares what happened, you know, it's just a very complex uh, ethical world she has to navigate. And there are uh, lots of really important cultural uh, lessons that we could learn and things about communities and activism. And um, it's just a riveting story. I read it super, super fast. So two recommendations. One is to check out Goodreads as a possibility for you to either track your own reading or even share with others. And the second one is the book, The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. And Sarah, what do you have to recommend for us today? Well, I will send you the links for the the books and the blog post that I recommended earlier. So Chris Emden's book and Contina Smith's blog post on emotional hooks. I loved both of those. And I think also one thing that I ran into in the last year too is Kathy Davidson's book, The New Education. Mm-hmm. And I'm halfway through it, but I love all of it. And two of the things that I really taken from it. One, she has a whole chapter on community colleges and how they are the best model for higher education. And I identified with that so strongly. And I think not to play favorites, <laughs> but I have observed to other people that I, you know, I've done a lot of these workshops and, and keynotes and things. And almost without fail, my favorites have all been community colleges. And the faculty are just so energized and so caring. And I just, I have left every single one of them just feeling revitalized. And I think Kathy Davidson really puts uh, a finger on a lot of why, you know, that, you know, it's, that it's not a deficit model of education. It's, it's a model of let's educate everyone. And she quotes someone who says, we take, we take the top 100% of students. And I think that there's something that's kind of poisonous about non-community colleges model of focusing on selectivity, you know, and kind of bragging about all of the people that they reject from education. And she goes into a lot of other and some models uh, of really stunning community colleges that are, are doing amazing work. And I loved that. And she also has two chapters, one 
against technophobia, which is, you know, strikes the heart of another kind of research interest of mine. But then she also has another chapter that's against technophilia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that we can't just we can't think technology is going to swoop in and save everything, but because it's clearly not. But you know, kind of wringing our hands endlessly about technology is also not a good idea. And so that's that's a really fantastic read that I'm looking forward to finishing. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for coming back on the show. And we already have agreed that you've got to come back again, because you have a book coming out (laughs) in 2019 called Hive Mind. And we've got to come back and have you talk about that one. That'll be so March of 2019 from Grand Central Publishing. So we already have to just book a date for that, too, because I can't wait to get to read it and also to get to talk to you about it as well. You don't have to twist my arm. (laughs) Thanks again for being here. Oh, thank you. Thanks once again to Sarah Rose Kavanaugh for joining me on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. It was great to hear more about the spark of learning and also about the research that you conducted through the grant. And we're looking forward to hearing more when those results come out. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you have yet to subscribe to the weekly update from Teaching in Higher Ed, you can get all the links to the great things that Sarah and I talked about, the Christopher Emden book and TED Talk and the HBR Women at Work podcast, Derek Breff's talking about times for telling. There's a lot more. So you can subscribe at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And if you have been listening to the show for a while and getting a lot out of it, it would be great for you to share a review on whatever service it is you use to listen to the show. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time. 